The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Dr. Svensson is a uh, native of... uh, Chile and was received his his his, uh, his early education there. Uh, he went for a year. I just learned this last night. He spent a year in Spain after finishing his undergraduate ed- education uh, in Chile and spent a year translating Spanish scholastic writers into Spanish. And from there, uh, moved to Germany, where he did a PhD at the University of Munich. And uh, then moved back and since 2007 has taught at the University of the Andes in Santiago and is professor of philosophy there. Uh, he is um, a representative of a not large body of reformed believers uh, uh, in that country and uh, we're very happy to, to have him here. He, he has a variety of interests. Uh, he has done writing on uh, Augustine and Kierkegaard and C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, Bonhoeffer, and was telling me a little bit last night about a bigger project he's working on with regard to John Owen and John Locke, and uh, we're going to hear a little bit of uh, some of that work as he addresses us on John Owen on toleration. So please welcome Dr. Svensson to Westminster. Thank you, Dave, for your kind uh, words of introduction. Uh, Though I'm uh, teaching philosophy, uh, there's usually some uh, book on theology by Westminster professors lying on my desk. So I'm very uh, grateful and honored to be among you here. And uh, I can maybe start with a short uh, word explaining my, the origin of my interest in, in John Owen and toleration. After all, Owen is often and understandably approached by those searching for a more robust Christian spirituality or a, for a more explicitly Trinitarian Protestant theology. And though I share those concerns, what has personally led me to his work is the search for non-liberal accounts of Toleration. Now, why do we need such non-liberal accounts of toleration? One way to respond to that question is to look at the ways we usually react to the liberal discourse on toleration. For a long time, we would only speak about toleration if we sensed that liberals were going too far in that direction. So toleration was a practice one would talk about only in order to note its excesses. But then, suddenly, things change. Our culture becomes increasingly suspicious about Christianity. We begin to feel pushed to a corner, and we come up with something else. Now, the problem is that tolerance is not wide enough, and we are outside the limits of the tolerated. Now, there may be good reasons for the complaint both regarding the excess and the narrowness of liberal toleration. But this almost simultaneous complaint will inevitably sound opportunistic, and those who suspect that may not be completely wrong. 
if it is not opportunistic, at least it reveals our lack of reflection on toleration on our own terms and with concern for something more than the limits of this practice. Now, one of the steps we must take if we wish to correct this is, of course, to pay due attention to those before us who have thought about toleration outside of the liberal tradition. One way to put this is to say that we may agree that Miguel Servidus should not have been burned, but that we do not want to defend him with the Erasmian arguments used by Castelio, arguments that stand in the background of the liberal tradition. And then Owen is, of course, someone that comes to mind as an alternative. To be honest, he would not have judged concerning Servidus much differently than the Genevan authorities. But when he reasons regarding toleration, we know that it is not Castelio we are reading. His case is furthermore of special interest given his proximity to John Locke, who began his studies in Christchurch, Oxford, when Owen was dean. But the relationship between Owen and Locke can be addressed with very different questions in mind. One can emphasize chronological questions and stress that Owen had been supporting toleration for a decade when Locke entered the college, and that Locke's own turn to toleration would not come until 1667. Locke only published his letter on toleration when the revolution was a fact, while Owen was among those who wrote about it in much riskier times. An alternative approach would rather ask for the extent of the toleration each of them proposed, in that case, it is Locke that seems to have better credentials. While neither of them extended toleration to Catholics, Locke extended it to Socinians. Considering this and the role played by Owen during the Protectorate, the most recent study of Owen on toleration by John Coffey concludes that he did not believe in modern religious liberty of a Lockean kind. Now, I want neither to celebrate Owen for coming earlier than Locke to the advocacy of toleration, nor do I want to criticize him for limiting it more than Locke. I do actually agree with Coffey's statement, though in a sense somewhat different than the one intended by him. My main purpose today is to stress that Owen represents an understanding of toleration rival to that of Locke. Thus, I do not want to think of him as a reformed forerunner of the liberal understanding of toleration, but rather as an alternative to that understanding. I do not intend, of course, to suggest that Owen was creating a new understanding of toleration, but rather that he represents a well-articulated version of a traditional conception of toleration with some exceptional emphasis of his own. And once the issue is stated in this way, one can still highlight the shortcomings of Owen's writings on toleration, but they will be shortcomings inside Owen's own understanding of the concept, not shortcomings on the way to Locke. Now, since I'm presenting Owen as an alternative to other conceptions of toleration, I must at least say something about these rival positions. Though I will be making some references to Locke, my focus is on how Owen can help us to address contemporary discourse on toleration in various manifestations. I describe this prevailing discourse on toleration as either calling for less than toleration or as asking us to go beyond it. In the first case, what we have is the avoiding of conflict 
for example, by the way of neutralization, by minimizing the relevance of issues that are controversial. When such an effort is successful, actual toleration isn't even needed. In the second case, the contemporary discourse on toleration does not take the road of neutralization, but rather of recognition, going beyond toleration to approval. In both cases, the language of toleration may remain in use, but actual toleration is either made unnecessary or it is transcended. In neither case do I think then that the problem lies mainly in too strict or too generous a drawing of boundaries. Rather, inadequate understandings of toleration are the problem. And in what follows, I turn to, I, to the alternative I believe one can find in Owen. I should add that I make no attempt at introducing you to the context of his writings, partly for reasons of space, partly because that question has been addressed in a satisfactory way by the historians that have worked on it. I'm rather interested in bringing to light his understanding of toleration in terms as general as possible, and even though I will not be making many direct applications to our own situation, I hope to leave the impression that thinking with Owen can actually be rewarding for our contemporary challenges. Let me start then by considering Owen's awareness of the disputed nature of the concept. He was evidently aware of the amount of writing concerning toleration that his contemporaries were producing. In 1646, he wrote that much discourse about toleration has been of late days amongst men. 21 years later, he opened his indulgence and toleration, writing about the multiplication of such writings at this time. It is mainly to works against toleration he's referring, and he did not have a favorable opinion concerning their quality. The design of such massive publishing, he wrote, was that what is wanting in them singly in reason may jointly be made up in noise. Though his own tracts on this issue are polemical, there is in them a discernible effort not to add to that noise. As I hope to show, he proceeds with significant consciousness of the need for conceptual clarification. Owen carefully specifies the object of toleration. He addresses the facts of the human condition that call for neither more nor less than toleration. And he distinguishes between the personal virtue of toleration and its political or judicial implementation. In other words, though Owen often tries to describe his own position as running between extremes, he does not represent a conceptually weak or diffuse center. To start with, it should be stressed that Owen's search for conceptual clarity concerning toleration is present from the first of his writings on the topic. In his country essay from 1646, he writes the following lines. All these things, and many more that might be added, must clearly be distinguished and determined by him that would handle this matter at large and exactly, that we may know what he means by those ambiguous words, and in what acceptation he owns them. Until this be done, a man may profess to oppose both toleration and non-toleration without any contradiction at all because in their several senses, they do not always intend the same. This lack of definition is something Owen mostly criticizes on the side of those who reject toleration. It is they, he writes, that should explain what is the direct purpose, signification, and tendency of non-toleration. But he aims at both sides of the divide. 
though he's writing in a context in which, I quote, some are pleading for it, more against it, he asserts that on neither side has he found anyone clearly and distinctly to define what they mean by toleration. It may be helpful to consider the fact that this applies today as well. We too live in a time with a vast production concerning toleration. In contrast to Owen, we might say that some are pleading against it, more for it, but the lack of conceptual clarity is still present, and the rival understandings that go under the same title of toleration are actually very similar to those of Owen's times. This will become evident from his own discussion. As he explains in his country essay, there are those who, when hearing about toleration, think of universal uncontrolled license. Toleration, according to this understanding, would exist if everybody is allowed to be, I quote, doing, speaking, acting, how, what, where, and when he pleaseth in agendis et credendis fidei, in all such things as concern the worship of God. But others, as Owen notes, do not use the word toleration in this sense, but are rather thinking of a mutual forbearance in communion or a toleration out of communion. As is clear from these quotations, Owen limits his discussion to toleration in matters of religion. But the two conceptions that he outlines here can well be said to exist as conceptions of toleration outside of the religious debate as well. The first we might call toleration as openness. The second quite clearly corresponds to what today is called a permission conception of toleration. Something is identified as an evil, and nonetheless, reasons are identified for letting this evil be, either inside or outside of our own community. From the discussion in this country essay, one can easily see that it is the second conception of toleration that Owen is advocating. But some further light can be shed on this issue by looking at the exact vocabulary he uses here and elsewhere. The synonyms of toleration one is ready to give, in fact, speak very clearly about the conceptions one endorses. Consider, for example, St. Augustine, who in his sermon 359 names toleration as synonymous with patience and forbearance, patientia et sustinentia. And next, consider Locke, who in the first paragraph of his letter on toleration equates toleration with goodwill and charity. While Augustine's synonyms clearly imply a reaction in front of something one disapproves, Locke's do not. Or we can also attend to the fact that in somewhat different contemporaries of Owen, Locke among them, one finds that the expressions liberty of conscience and toleration begin to be used interchangeably. This too is revealing. Granting liberty of conscience does not imply the approving disposition of goodwill, but neither does it imply the reproof implicit in patience or forbearance. In this, Owen is clearly siding with Augustine rather than Locke. He may have written much concerning liberty of conscience, but he is consistent in addressing toleration as a more specific phenomenon. He regularly uses forbearance as a synonym for it, both when speaking of the personal virtue and of the political practice of toleration. Such a choice of words is significant, since it is hardly possible to combine with understanding of toleration as openness. 
though it is not necessarily a moral reproof that is involved, we forbear things we actually yet to be negative. Equally eloquent is the use of the word indulgence. As we have already seen, Owen even uses this word in the title of one of his works from 1667, Indulgence and Toleration. The same year, he published a peace offering in an apology and a humble plea for indulgence and liberty of conscience. Such a language would soon completely disappear. In his prologue to Locke's Letter on Toleration, the Unitarian William Popple, who translated the letter, the letter into English, explicitly contrasted Locke's project with the efforts at comprehension as well as with declarations of indulgence. Neither of these Popple rights can do the work. Now, it comes as no surprise that Popple and Owen would disagree regarding indulgence or on anything. But it is noteworthy that Owen's 19th century editor, William Gould, has the same reaction as Popple against Owen's language. The chief fault of the tract, Gould writes in the introduction, is its very moderation as a humble plea for an indulgence. In order to explain this objection, Gould writes that Owen, after all, is just asking for the free exercise of those rights which no government is able to confer or entitled to withhold, and the protection of which is one of the highest ends of government. This merits at least two comments. The first thing we should note is that this is a largely Lockean commentary on Owen, as can be seen in the language of rights and in the end assigned to government. Maybe it is an unconsciously Lockean position, but the fact that we find it in Owen's editor is as good evidence as one can get about Locke's success. He was successful to the point of making Owen's distinctive position invisible even to his own editor. And that is only one example of how pre-modern thinking on toleration has become invisible to us more generally. But the second thing to note is that we of course should ask ourselves whether Gould is not right here in following Locke rather than Owen. At first sight, Popple and Gould do not at all seem to be confused when they claim that religious freedom is a right, not a gift granted by those in power as an indulgence. The permission conception of toleration is indeed often criticized for its paternalism. If the freedom we have is just an indulgence that has been granted, a permission that has been given, it may be drawn back by those in power. One can, of course, excuse Owen, saying that he simply knew how much he could ask for. His is a concretely situated petition, not an abstract theory of toleration. But rather than taking that line of defense, I would argue that Owen seems to be conscious of the objection that could be voiced against the terminology he has chosen, and that he nonetheless sticks to the permission conception of toleration. Let us consider the way he speaks in the country essay. Toleration, he there writes, is the alms of authority. Yet men that beg for it think so much at least their due. If toleration were just alms, it could justly be withdrawn by those in power. But Owen simultaneously stresses that it may be due to those who ask for it. Now, this is not fleshed out in Owen's writings, but one can see 
I think, that he's searching for a language that enables us to capture two things that are not often held together. He's preserving the reticent language of toleration as indulgence, which stresses that one reproves what one allows, and at the same time, he's using a language of liberty and rights that frees toleration from being an arbitrary concession by those in power. And to preserve this double language seems to me of great consequence. Toleration is namely often rejected nowadays for two reasons. Because it seems to make us dependent of concessions of the powerful, but also because it is judgmental. If we turn our eyes to thinkers as different as Kant and Goethe, Nussbaum and Derrida, we will find toleration rejected because it is arrogant, insulting, grudging, parsimonious. That was one adjective per each author. In these words, the two criticisms that these authors share are actually lumped together in a not very helpful way. The first of these criticisms may namely be pertinent. There is a paternalistic origin in the notion of tolerance, though one can wonder whether that origin has not been sufficiently neutralized in constitutional democracies. But the second criticism presumes that we can overcome judgment and arrive at what Derrida calls pure hospitality instead of the conditional hospitality of toleration. And it is here that Owen's position, sticking to the conditional language of toleration while acknowledging that it is not mere alms, is so relevant. John Gray, one of the most intelligent liberal theorists we have today, has written that the contemporary rejection of toleration is strongly, strongly related to the plagiarism of contemporary culture. It is no coincidence, then, that precisely in Owen, the grudging language of toleration is preserved. The idea that we can overcome conflict, judgment, discord, etc., obviously implies hopes regarding the human condition that Owen cannot possibly share with the critics of mere toleration I just referred to. So I have just considered the impact of one doctrinal area, anthropology, on the rival conceptions of toleration. Two optimistic expectations regarding humanity lead to look at toleration as a passing ideal, as a necessary first step away from intolerance towards approval. It is not at all surprising, then, that rival understandings of toleration would emerge precisely in the midst of Armenian reform controversies. But we can also look at this from another angle not asking for the relevance of one particular set of doctrines, but pondering how different views of Christian doctrine as a whole go hand in hand with different accounts of toleration. Once again, the comparison with Locke may prove helpful. If I find it, yeah, here. <laughs> Locke, it is often argued, gives toleration more generous limits than Owen. But the question is whether they can be so easily compared. Rather, we might say that Locke indeed goes further than Owen, but with less baggage. Doctrinal minimalism is namely a central feature of the letter on toleration. This letter opens with a strong affirmation of a merely practical Christianity and ends with an appendix on heresy in which Locke rejects the contrivers of symbols, systems, and confessions. Guess who is meant? 
from his private correspondence, we can easily conclude that it is Reformed theologians he has in mind with that assertion. Writing to Philip van Limburg, the Armenian theologian to whom he dedicated the letter on toleration, he explicitly contrasts the biblical simplicity he's striving for with the works of Calvin and Turretin. And in his later work, The Reasonableness of Christianity, Locke's main aim is to defend that only one doctrine must be counted as fundamental, namely that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, whatever one thinks of this as a theology, it is striking that such an understanding of Christianity could come to be seen as essentially more tolerant than a doctrinally more developed one. It is true that if there is only one dogma, there is less to fight about, but one may behave as badly in those fights as in any other. The fact that this doctrinally minimalist understanding of Christianity is presented as more tolerant reveals, in fact, that tolerance is being understood not so much as a way of acting in conflicts, but rather as an attempt to make sure conflicts cannot arise. In this, Locke, the most influential 17th century writer on toleration, is paving the way precisely for the reaction of toleration that we find in the authors who call us to drop the term altogether. It is hardly necessary to mention that Owen was not of the same mind regarding confessions of faith. What I'm trying to highlight, however, is that this, that this difference with Locke is essential not only for understanding their divergent theological positions, but for understanding their rival understandings of toleration as well. If Locke's theological vision were ultimately successful, we would have nothing to disagree about. Toleration, in Owen's sense, would thus be rendered superfluous. In contrast, if we look at Owen, what we find is a case in which the compatibility between toleration and robust doctrinal systems comes to light. However, at least one significant objection can be raised against what I'm suggesting. The objection may be raised in terms of Owen's proximity to Oliver Cromwell. This proximity suggests that notwithstanding the language he uses, Owen is enrolled not so much in a project of toleration as in a project of union among the saints a project that mostly goes under the language of liberty of conscience, but that sometimes uses the language of toleration as well. In these terms, the objection has been framed in a much celebrated article by Blair Warden. But the same objection can be given a more theoretical form. Owen is among those Protestant scholastics who take part in the project of identifying fundamental articles of faith and extending toleration only to those who adhere to these fundamental articles. This seems to imply that his differences with doctrinal minimalists like Locke are differences in degree, in the number of doctrines held to be necessary, not in the nature of the project. To put it another way, I started by replacing the question of the limits of toleration with the question of the nature of toleration, but there comes a point where these two questions cannot be separated. If the limits are drawn so strictly that only differences in a diaphora, things indifferent, are being accepted, then the project is one of union, not of toleration. Now, I must confess that in this point, matter, matters are not as clear as I would wish for my contrast between Owen and Locke. 
However, one can make some positions that seem to make the case I have defended viable. Much will depend, I think, on how the idea of fundamental articles is framed. There are, of course, various versions of the idea of fundamental articles. For my purposes here, the main difference among them is how these different conceptions of fundamental articles will regard that which is not considered fundamental. It makes a big difference whether things not fundamental are considered secondary, but still relevant, or whether they are regarded as adiaphora, indifferent. If toleration is reduced to those who agree on fundamentals and disagree on adiaphora, then Warden is right. This could not strictly be called a conception of toleration. But this, I think, is not Owen's position. I have already pointed to the fact that Owen not only uses the word toleration, but consistently applies it to things he reproves. Now we can reassert this from another angle. It is not things indifferent that are to be tolerated, though one sometimes finds this uh, version in the secondary literature. Owen does defend some practices as a diaphora, and in the same context he argues for toleration. However, only those are being called to toleration who do not see that these practices are indifferent, but think they are wrong. If the contrast I have thus far made between Locke and Owen is plausible, one might argue that Owen is defending a conception of tolerance that, with minor nuances, is to be found in earlier authors as well. In the work of Aquinas or Luther, for instance, to name but two very different authors in the Augustinian tradition, one finds a strong conviction that there are evils which those in authority simply must endure, in analogy to the way in which God suffers our evil. They both speak of a tolerantia dei in a way that could be congenial to Owen. But something else is added in his work. He not only knows that there are several evils which political authority cannot remove without leading to greater evil. He is also responding to a fact on which that previous tradition did not focus with the same insistent, insist, insistence, namely pluralism. In contrast to toleration, pluralism is, of course, a word Owen himself does not use. But he's conscious of the problems that the search for a religiously homogeneous society leads to. Here, I will not discuss whether Owen may be seen as a two-kingdom theologian, nor how this is compatible with the role he assigns to the magistrate in the care for religion. What, in any case, is clear is his opposition to the idea, as he puts it in indulgence and toleration, that the church and commonwealth may stand upon the same bottom and foundation. The effort to build society upon this bottom of uniformity implies that the beneficial ends of government will reach only those whom the church comprises in its uniformity. This Owen rejects straightforwardly. These things, he writes, are evident mistakes in policy. In a way, this is not surprising, since in 1667, when he writes this, he was not anymore among those comprised in the uniformity of the church. But it is significant that in these pages, the issue is taken up not as a reflection on the condition of Protestant dissenters, but as a matter of principle. He wishes, he writes, that the principle itself for the future be cast out of the minds of men. 
the principle should be changed according to Owen because the fact itself of human plurality will not change. The variety of opinions about things religious is like to be continued in the world. In the peace offering written the same year, the same intuitions are touched upon, but they are dealt with not only in re relation to religious questions, but as constants of human nature. There are, Owen writes, differences which are inseparable from the nature of man as diversified in individuals, and the preservation of society rests on them being forborn and allowed. So when it comes to addressing the fact of pluralism, Owen stands not a step behind Locke. The opposite is rather true. If one identifies doctrinal minimalism as a key component of the Lockean view of toleration, one will become conscious of its tendency to produce a new kind of cultural and religious homogeneity. But in some passages, Owen seems to go a bit further than merely recognizing the fact of pluralism. In the same tract I just quoted, he writes that the chiefest glory and beauty of civil society consists in the harmony that can exist between those who have such differences. What should we make of such affirmations? We may praise Owen for the way in which he recognizes the diversity of religious beliefs, for the way he sees such a diversity as one of the great beauties of civil society. If, however, beauty or goodness are the main ways in which we describe the plurality of convictions, we may be leaving the permission conception of toleration behind. Such an understanding of toleration presupposes that we object something rather than stress its beauty. Now, this tension may only be apparent in, on, in Owen's work. He's not necessarily affirming that it is beautiful for a plurality of worldviews to exist. There is some beauty, however, in the fact that persons with rival religious claims are able to endure their differences and have some kind of life in common. This may be laid out with more clarity than Owen does, but he still seems to be a good example of the fact that the language of mere toleration and the language of appreciation can coexist without this necessarily leading to conceptual confusion. Since I believe that to be the case, let me give you two examples of the way he combines the discussion of toleration and approval. The first is from a much earlier piece, his of toleration, published in 1649. There, Owen explicitly describes toleration as a kind of approbation. Once again, we may find that he is using language that does not fit easily with his view of toleration as restraint before evil. If we approve, toleration is not needed. But it is clear that approbation here does not imply simple approval. It is what we may call the approbation of things reproved, the positive disposition to suffer a certain evil. But immediately after calling toleration a kind of approbation, Owen mentions the fact that we are called to opposition to every error. In our culture, the fact of opposing an error, whatever means one uses in such opposition, is seen as implying that one is intolerant. All the more strange it must sound that Owen makes a call to such opposition right after calling toleration a kind of approbation. But rather than being contradictory, this is Owen's response to what he describes as a frequent paralogism, namely that if errors must be tolerated, then men may do what they please. 
though toleration is equal with permission, it is not being understood in exclusively passive terms. It is approving the subsistence of something we deem to be wrong, while in the meantime some opposition, some efforts to change it may remain valid. That one may still be called tolerant while engaged in such opposition has of course to do with the means used. Concerned about religious toleration, Owen, is, Owen of course stresses the fact that the means one uses should be gospel mediums and spiritual weapons. We can, however, draw further conclusions for other spheres of life and affirm that toleration of something is compatible with opposing it through persuasion and other kinds of action. In any case, though the specific act of toleration as the act of patience may be described as passive, it does not require wholly passive citizens. The second passage that I want to mention leads us back to the 1667 work Indulgence and toleration. There, Owen writes that there are some who think they must persecute, since what is forborne, they suppose, must needs be approved. Owen's point, we can summarize, is to treat intolerance, toleration, and approbation as three distinct dispositions against those who, on either side of the disputes, would force us to choose between only two of them. That point can be asserted today against those who will treat us as intolerant if we do not approve something. But as one can well see in the case of Owen, it is also a point that must be asserted against those who would refuse to tolerate with the excuse that they are being forced to approve. There are numerous other areas in which Owen and Locke may be fruitfully compared. I have said nothing, for instance, of the way each of them combines theological and common sense arguments for toleration, nor have I said much concerning their respective understanding of the role of government. But I hope to have shown that Owen's writings on toleration should interest us for more than historical reasons. Summarizing, I would say that a first thing to be learned from him is the consciousness regarding the existence of rival doctrines of toleration. As I try to show, the success of the Lockean account of toleration is so significant that it has made Owen's distinctive position invisible even to his own editor. In contrast, Owen regularly writes as someone who is conscious of the rival conceptions of toleration that go under the same language. Second, I would highlight that these rival understandings of toleration go hand in hand with rival theologies. In contrast with Locke's doctrinal minimalism, a position shared with most modern political philosophers, Owen is a good example of how robust views of life are compatible with toleration. In an often quoted article, philosopher Thomas Nagel affirms, against the prevailing versions of liberalism, that liberalism should provide the devout with a reason for tolerance. Looking at Owen, one may well reply that the devout can provide themselves with good reasons for tolerance. But in doing this, they can actually help their fellow citizens to develop richer accounts of toleration, accounts in which toleration is not a free-floating practice, but a virtue that depends on other virtues and uncertain beliefs regarding the human condition. And if compatible with rich accounts of human life, toleration emerges not as a project that seeks to overcome conflict, but as a way of behaving in conflicts. 
Finally, I have tried to highlight the fact that Owen not only represents a specific tradition in thinking of toleration, but also has some specific contributions to that tradition. He is a representative of that tradition precisely in the moment when religious homogeneity, at least in some sense, in some degree, started to fade away, and this helped him to develop a nuanced discourse when it comes to the negative and positive aspects of toleration. He may be the only author in the tradition of the permission conception of toleration to actually use the word affirmation while describing his enterprise. Our culture tends to either make toleration identical with recognition or approval, or else to reject toleration as a grudging, merely conditional kind of hospitality. In contrast, I have tried to suggest that Owen does an unusually good job in including the positive and negative aspects involved in any act of toleration. He is sensible to the fact that the negative judgment present in toleration is both preceded and followed by affirmations, but the negative moment that stands in between is not swallowed up by these affirmations. Though in many concrete points, Owen must be judged insufficient for what we have to say on toleration today, the general outline of his thought certainly can help Christians to avoid the misleading dichotomy between approval and intolerance. Thank you very much for your attention. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.